As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. Welcome to CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of Jack's office, library, study. I don't know if I'd call it a conservation area or a conservatory, but it's where I am, and I am surrounded by plants, so I guess that counts. You are listening to Android's Dungeon, a show about games, movies, music, whatever happened to come across my path before I sat down and recorded a show on the one and only CFRU 93.3 FM that is based out of University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. There's some good stuff there. It's an okay campus. Part of it looks really good. Part of it looks like a brutalist nightmare. But I guess you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of campuses, uh, at least in Canada, that don't resemble that. Um... I know Queens definitely felt the same way. Anyway, uh, Android's Dungeon, show about books, movies, games, music, whatever. It's just me today, flying solo, Han Solo style. So I'll do my best not to bore you too badly and split up most of my droning about stuff nobody really cares about except me into a more palatable chunk. Or chunk-su. A chunk so let's get going. Not much to say, aside from, uh, you know, what what did I cro- what crossed my desk just before I sat down? And uh, I have to say, I've been watching a lot of The Expanse. And The Expanse, for those who don't know, and I think a friend of the show, Harry, has spoken about before. Um, and unless he's wrong and I've been misleading other people before, The Expanse is a movie based on a book, based on a RPG system? Pen and paper system? And it's... I, I, I hesitate to call it hard sci-fi. For those are, are hard SF, uh, speculative fiction for those who are really in the know. Um, but for the people who aren't as familiar with what that descriptor means, hard SF typically refers to something more rooted in physics and reality. And they attempt to scientifically explain how things do things in these fantastical science fiction, speculative fiction universes. Um, so you, you get... It, 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 it's kind of a, a nitpicky split between something like, let's say, Star Wars and Star Trek. So Star Wars is on the side where it's kind of like, I don't have to explain whatever I don't want to. Uh, we've got, you know, we got Jedi. Who cares? Um, but it also there, if you dive deep into the mythology and the lore, some people have tried very, very hard to explain that sort of stuff in, uh, you know, pretty, pretty reasonable amount of time and pretty reasonable ways, but it feels kind of, um, you know, uh, after the fact, post facto rationalization of the technology, Star Trek, and then is, you know, a, a, a couple steps down the line where everything is supposedly really based on uh, their their fake tech, but their tech 
but that's where you end up with the techno babble stuff where they start going on about the the plasma relays and uh, rerouting the warp core to get away with this and turning the deflector dish into uh, some sort of giant burrito cooker Um, and then you get into the stuff like uh, the expanse which is more concerned about kind of uh, stepping forward into the future, not so far that we've got warp drives and replicators and are chatting with aliens all the time, but taking basically whatever this current uh, reality of space travel and maybe adding a couple of conceits to make things a little more entertaining, um, but for the most part keeping it rooted firmly in uh, physics and... Um, constraints of oxygen food water what are what are problems we can imagine in the future so the expanse takes place in this uh, solar system of uh, you have the earth sort of un collective you have the belters which are a bunch of basically blue collar south africans who are the uh, people who are mining these resources and they've been they born they've been born and they'll die in zero g and then you have the martians who are settled on mars and mars is kind of this military powerhouse um that has been that's in constant threat of war with the earth so and then you have this whole thing about these uh, this ragtag group of uh, people piloting a ship around the galaxy or around the uh, the solar system getting into trouble and uh, uncovering this plot involving this, this this molecule that appears to do crazy things so anyway, The Expanse is tremendous. I really enjoy it. It's shot in Canada, so bonus points for that. In Toronto, you'll pick up on a bunch of Canadian actors as you go through the show. And uh, overall, it's extremely entertaining TV. With it, It's not perfect by any stretch, but it, it, it's very good at what it does. And um, if, if you like science fiction and you enjoy a well-told story, generally speaking, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to be unhappy with The Expanse. Uh, I, For me, I had heard about it for a long time, and I, I didn't resist getting into it uh, deliberately, but I think for some reason I, the, uh, the premise of it uh, just didn't grab me, at least on the surface, because... I'm so used to Star Trek and Star Wars and the rest of that stuff that someone trying to take a grittier, more grounded approach to uh, speculative fiction that feels really grimy and, uh, you know, everyone's clawing to survive. It it doesn't appeal to me as much as the more entertaining sort of uh, adventure stories and morality tales and horror of uh, what you'd get in, like, uh, let's say, Star Trek, for example. But I'm happy we finally sat down and gave it a shot because the show is quite compelling. It hooks you, and uh, it, the production values are, generally speaking, through the roof. And I can't imagine how expensive a show it is to produce. And I'm not sure if it started on Netflix or it's always been an Amazon thing or some weird co-production, but right now we are watching it through Amazon. And it, it looks like a million bucks, and uh, that's saying something. So... Highly recommend watching Expanse. That's my little intro to the show. Uh, because it's literally what I was just watching before I sat down to record this. So, um, I guess if I was going to compare anything... you So on one hand you have The Expanse, which is telling a really neat story. Which uh, kind of... Uh, I, I really hate to do it, but it this it's got these... That if you want to trick somebody into watching it, you could say it's like Game of Thrones in space. But that's not fair to the show either. Um, but there's all these cool little factions and people vying for power and a lot of political machinations. Um, 
so you have this you have the expanse on one side and then you have arguably the most frustrating waste of time uh production i've seen in quite some time which is star trek discovery that i believe on uh, episode four of the third season and i it, it boggles my mind how a show that looks uh as good as discovery does generally speaking um, can be so brain dead and stupid and and almost it has to be deliberately aggravating. I, there's no other way to explain how frustrating of an experience it is watching the show. So at this point, it's firmly in hate watch territory. Which for me, has been a long time since a show was that bad and uh, making you want to just see like how like how deep does a rabbit hole go? How bad can this thing get? And so far, it seems like every episode. Uh, I'm not saying it's totally irredeemable, like there are some moments in it, but generally speaking, it is so frustrating and annoying and uh, borderline disrespectful, uh, uh, deliberately disrespectful, that you have to wonder who this show is made for. And I, do, I know a lot of people are quite fond of it, which, um, I, and it's nothing personal, uh, and if you like it, you like it, you know, the gustibus non est disputandum. But as far as I'm concerned, I think it's 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 arguably one of the, the biggest wastes of time I've ever seen. And um, it, 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 maybe it's exacerbated because I just finished rewatching Deep Space Nine and I'm going through the uh, next gen again. Um, and just compared to those two shows, it, it's 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 really kind of interesting to see how badly some writers today could miss the mark. And I've been trying to isolate what I think the main problems of the show are, and there there are many. It's very easy to kind of do and take some very surface shots and uh, figure out some really basic things with some lazy writing and sort of trying to score some political points. But I think fundamentally, it just it it's made by people who don't like speculative fiction. It's made by people who don't like uh, the the world that they've been given access to. And as a result, you have a combination of incompetency and disrespect that culminates in a project that feels soulless and idiotic and almost as if it's, it's, it's a formality, um, uh, perfunctory. It's as if it had to happen and it is happening and we're not going to do a damn thing about it. So, if that hasn't scared you away from my um, in, from this show, I, I like I don't want to scare you. I want you to watch it. I want you to let me know what you think. Um, Droid Dungeon Radio at uh, gmail dot com, uh, and I think it's also a Droid Dungeon Android Dungeon at cfru dot ca. I can't remember that one. I I never get an email on that except for EGM meetings at uh, cfru. Uh, but yeah, those are my quick reviews. So the Expanse, fantastic Star Trek Discovery. Um, it 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 hurts. It, it's painful how bad it is, and it, I think it is mostly disrespectful. But uh, that's I'll leave that to uh, you know let you decide how you feel about that. So let's move into something a little more a little more exciting, a little nicer, and keep up the uh, the space theme. And uh, let's talk about Roll for the Galaxy. So Roll for the Galaxy is a game that is a spinoff of Tom Lehman's extremely popular uh, Race for the Galaxy tableau building card game. Race for the Galaxy is interesting in that I don't know a single person who owns a copy of this game. I don't know anyone personally who's ever played it. 
Um, the only reason I've played it is because I bought it on Steam uh, a couple years ago, and I played a fair bit of it on Steam, and I don't think I quite understood what I was doing when I was playing it, but I, I managed to get okay at it, oddly enough. Um, I think I can beat a computer on medium most of the time. The computer on hard, I think uh, that's the step up that I can't quite overcome. But Race for the Galaxy, like I just said, is a tableau builder in which you have a bunch of cards, and uh, what you're doing is you're trying to be the first to have... Uh, well, it's not even true, but you want to have the most points at the end of the game, and the game would end when you have a certain amount of cards in front of you, or when the victory point um, pile kind of is exhausted. So typically the game's going to end with uh, the cards disappearing, but it's not outside the realm of possibility of victory point pile disappearing as well, especially at higher player counts. Um, and what makes the game interesting is there are five phases in the game. There's the explore, there's the develop, there's the settle, there's the produce, and there's the ship. And I don't want to overwhelm people with trying to remember all these things. But just keep in mind, five distinct phases let you do five different things. And each of these cards that you're going to be acquiring are used to do certain things. Uh, so if you uh, want to, um, let's say, make one of the cards that has a diamond on it, that means you're developing. If you want to make one of the cards that's a circle, it means you're settling or conquering. Um, and you're just going down the line, and you can put goods onto planets, you can take them off to get extra points, and so I could be mixing that up, though, so don't take this with a grain of salt, or take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. Um, but the, the real part of Race for the Galaxy that made it into really, uh, I think what it is most known for today, is it has this follow-the-leader mechanic. And what happens is, is you pick one of these actions to do on your turn. Are you going to explore? Are you going to develop? Are you going to settle or conquer, um, produce or ship? And when you do that, you're secretly choosing that. Your opponent does the same and your other opponents and so on. When you reveal your cards, you're only going, or when, you, when things go ahead, the only thing you're going to do is the thing that you've decided to do or picked. That's it. But the kicker is everyone else gets to do that thing too. Conversely, you get to do the thing that you may not have picked, but your opponents picked, and allow, that allows you to follow suit. Um, and it's been a while since I played race, so I apologize if I'm getting some of these rules wrong. But I believe the person who picked it first gets this better action, and the people who didn't pick it get the weaker action as well. But they still get to participate in some sense. Kind of like Twilight Imperium. I don't know if Puerto Rico does the same thing. Um, so anyway, that was the real kicker. So th that works on two levels. The first is that it lets you try to anticipate what your opponents are doing. And you try to, so if you know you want to do this one action and you know your opponent wants to do it too, you can be like, eh, I'm going to maximize it. I'm going to try to do something else and rely on the fact that my opponent is going to try to explore this turn. So that gives me a free action. But that leads to some brinkmanship and sort of, I know that you know that I know that you know, where somebody can look at you and think the same thing and decide to try to trick you and say, well, I know they want to do this as their backup action, so I'm going to rely on them doing that, and I'm going to do something else instead. So you end up with this chain reaction where maybe, theoretically, nobody gets to do what they wanted to do because you were relying on somebody else to do it. Um, the other part about this is that it keeps players engaged, and this is something that I think is more and more important as time goes on, and I don't know if I've talked about it on the show before, but the best games I'm finding today are the ones where you give a damn about what's going on when it's not your turn. And I love my multiplayer solitaire games, uh, stuff like Feast for Odin, for example. Even though there's blocking in it, it's still mostly multiplayer solitaire. Um, 
but there's a lot of very bloodless games where I don't. What you're doing has no effect on me, and what I'm doing has no effect on you, and it's tough to be engaged. And you just have your nose buried in your own game for the most part, and you're left to do your own thing. What makes Race for the Galaxy so interesting is that you you're paying attention to what people are doing, and you're trying to get a feel and trying to think about what they're up to, and that is a fantastic experience that. Uh, keeps you on your toes and keeps your opponents on your toes and leads to moments where you go, oh, why didn't you? I thought you were going to pick that. Oh, no, I put so much stuff. I thought this was that's really important to my scheme, my plans. So engagement, it, it keeps uh, or it builds a strong sense of player engage, engagement. And that's what's really cool about that. So anyway, that's Race for the Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy uh, is the dice version of this game. And uh, I'm not going to go too far into the rules. But suffice to say, everyone starts with a certain amount of dice that has uh, six-sided dice that have certain symbols on them corresponding to the, each of the actions. Every turn, you shake up your dice, you chuck them down, and you line them up in their corresponding rows. So all the explorers and the explorer, all the develops and the develop, and so on. And then you pick one of these uh, uh, dice, and you activate one of the columns. And that means that you're picking that column to do that action that turn. So you always do, you'll always get one action minimum. And for every other matching die face beneath that column, you get to do more and more of those things. Uh, so the same rules apply to, as it does in race and that somebody else, if they pick a different thing, you get to do the same thing they did and they get to do the thing you did. So you're again, you're looking at other people's tableaus, you're seeing what they're doing, and you're going, okay, I know they're going to have to do this, I need to get out of here, and, I'm, and I can piggyback off this, or I can rely on them doing that, so I don't have to worry about uh, doing this action that I could have swore, or that I need to do, because I know they need it more than I do. Um, and you can acquire more dice, and when you use your, when you spend your die, they go back into this little section of your board called citizenry, and you have to spend money to get them back, so it costs a dollar per die to bring them back to your cup to shake them up so you have to balance getting money to get more dice into your cup with getting more dice with putting planets down and all and i forgot to mention race whenever you buy these cards like i said it's a tableau builder they all provide benefits toward you so you want to build an engine of sorts um and maybe because I haven't played Roll as much as Race, I found with Race it was pretty easy to figure out which engines you should be aiming for. Or if you're going for lots of military, you want to aim towards all these other benefits associated with the military uh, victory cards. If you're going production, you want tons of planets you can dump stuff on, and, and so on. Like alien technology, developing, so on, so on, so on. Uh, race is very similar, but it feels maybe a little more difficult to get your the specific engine going uh, compared to what I'm accustomed to in uh, these styles of games. But it's the only reason I'm bringing it up is because I've got to play it again recently online at BoardGameCore.net. Uh, I think it's BoardGameCore. Um, actually, I think I'm screwing that up. I think that's the uh, uh, Food Chain Magnet website. It's... Um, yeah, I forget. I'll, I'll look it up in a bit. Anyway, uh, so I've been playing that online, and there's a great implementation of it, and it's free, and I've been playing with uh, some friends of mine, and it's it's just a lovely experience. It's interactive. It's fun. There's lots of strategy, and even though you are chucking dice, which are su which is super random, you still have a significant amount of control over where these dice are going, and also, because each color of dice specialize in different things... You can focus on getting more dice that are related to the, the fields that you are trying to explore on your own engine. 
depending on what you're trying to do. So there's a lot going on in this game, and it's a kind of a nightmare to teach because it's very confusing, and I think it's utterly unlike anything a lot of people have played. If you've played Race, you're going to grok onto it a lot faster than someone who hasn't. But in I'd say Roll for the Galaxy is a great game because not only does it work in two players, but I think it's also a solid uh, medium to light uh, tableau builder that you could introduce to anyone who has a, a remote interest in sort of space alien themes and is is comfortable with kind of sticking with the initial sort of uh, hill climb of figuring out the rules. And it's actually easier than race because the symbology in this game is a lot simpler compared to race's uh, borderline second language of, uh, <laughs> of icons and uh, arrows and the rest of that stuff. I never found it too bad, but it is nuts. Because I, I, I've spent too much time with it, so I, I think I get most of it. Um, anyway, Race for the Galaxy, great game. So I played online a few times. I was starting to play a game uh, with Kayla the other day, but we ran out of time, so we couldn't finish it. But it was basically a practice game anyway. And she, I think she was skeptical at first, but by the end, she had figured it out. And I think she was having a good time. And I think, too, that she was kind of getting to on to the... Okay, I'm going to try to piggyback off you, and I'm going to try to piggyback off you. And figuring out the action economy, we're getting more dice. Bottom line, give it a shot. If you can, go online. It's not the same, because chucking dice is way more fun in person than it is letting the RNG uh, operate and hit up those symbols. But if you can, play a copy in person. I think you'll like it. And uh, it's if you watch a video beforehand, I think it'll take a lot of the mystery and the pain off your head. Um, but aside from that, give it a shot and let me know what you think. So Musical Break will be back in a second. Stay tuned. Thread right through Tie them in my 
Welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard was I Wove a Garment for You by Level 7, who, full disclosure, is a friend of mine and uh, just released a single, I think, two weeks ago. Pretty impressive as far as I'm concerned. She's a very talented musician, and uh, hopefully we hear a lot more from her in the future. Uh, Not my usual music, not the usual music you'll hear on the show, typically. But uh, it's fun to mix things up now and then. So anyway, level seven, I wove a garment for you. Check out her band camp. Uh, I think on Apple Music or the rest of that stuff. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> Outside of band camp, I'm very unfamiliar with uh, anyone purchasing music digitally. I think I've bought one album on iTunes. And uh, it was just because I was desperate to pick up this because he had like two places he was selling stuff. Uh, so anyway, before we left, I was talking about... Um, Roll for the Galaxy and Race for the Galaxy, and also I was getting a little heated up about uh, Star Trek Discovery and how much I hate that show. Um, Let's talk about 1889. It's that time of the show, folks, when we talk about an 18xx game. 1889, History of Shikoku Railways, is an 1830 variant set in uh, the on an island in the south of Japan, I believe. I'm not totally sure where it is. Um, but the bottom line is it's uh, an 18xx set in Japan. And when I say it's an 1830 variant, what I mean is that all the mechanics of 1830 are identical in this one, except for 50% capitalization. Or sorry, 50% uh, to float a company. Um... Aside from that, it's nearly identical. I think the train amount is the same. The price of the trains are the same. The stock market, the same. The privates nearly operate identically. There's only uh, There are two that are different. Um, and the bank is a bit smaller, and the tiles are more restrictive. But beyond that, and I know it sounds like I just went through a whole bunch of changes, but j- believe me, the more you play these games, the more you'll understand that if... If that's all it's different, then that's nothing. 
fundamentally, the rules are the same as 1830 as they are in this one. You can dump companies on people. There's a train rush. If you can't pay for the train, you got to pay out of pocket. If you can't pay out of pocket, you got to sell shares. If you don't, you can't sell enough shares, you go bankrupt. I have no idea how anyone goes bankrupt in these games. I really don't because uh, unless you're just flying so close to the sun that you somehow have, cannot afford to dump like 10 shares to if you had to. Uh, to but I guess if you get hit with two diesels and you have, but I I just don't get it. I really don't see how people go bankrupt. And I'd love to play against somebody who made me go bankrupt because the worst I could see happening is me just losing. But never ever going bankrupt is wild. Anyway, eighteen eighty nine is uh, I was telling Joel we were chatting a little bit. Um, is another game that I would put above eighteen thirty, and the reason for that is. It is a smaller, stripped-down version of the same game that plays more quickly but hits the same beats and, frankly, feels more fun. And I think what I like about it more than 1830 is that it feels like all the companies are viable from the get-go and that you can start any company and all of a sudden you can be perfect. You can start making cash. It's, It's all about how well you run it. In 1830, for example, I think starting the CNO or the Chesapeake or um, the C, uh, the Canadian National, they're they're very weak moves unless you're some sort of tough guy and you know like some really sick plays later on, because otherwise they're just way better companies to invest in and start. So right away, 1889 has a has a leg up on its. Uh, North American counterpart. Um, the other part that I like too is I and I mentioned this is that the bank is smaller, and with smaller banks, uh, this turns into the game not only being shorter, but as what happened in our game, and this is our first game of it ever, or for me at least, um, is that you really notice what happens when money is only ever really taken from the bank, versus or at least disproportionately to the amount that's put in via train purchases. And what happened was, in the game we played, we ended up feeling sort of bottlenecked because everyone's companies had the amount of trains they could buy, and the only way we could get more trains was by somebody buying the sixth train, which rusts all the threes. But the problem was that no one could get a sixth train because we were at max. And the rules of 18xx are that you are never allowed, at least in the ones we've played, you're never allowed to sell a train to the bank. You can sell them to other players and to other companies, but you can never sell it to the bank. So if you have two companies that are both at max trains, that's not going to help you. Um, and you'd have to really wonder, there's no way another player would buy a three train from you just so you can buy a six and rust uh, unless you bought, they bought it for a dollar and it was in their interest to do so. Um, which I could see happening. If it was a new company or they had the cash and they it was like, okay, well, I don't want to end up having... To, uh, I want to be able to buy the better train. You want to be able to buy a better train. And as long as it's not hurting your other companies, it's in your interest. And maybe it's even hurting your opponents because now suddenly they've rusted a bunch of their trains. But I'm getting into some nitty-gritty strategy here and uh, I don't want to bore you too much. No more than normal. So anyway, 1889, played it to three players. Uh, it was two of our first games, 
uh, two of us, it was our first time, and the one other guy's played it a few times. I think he owns a copy, which is wild, because I think the game is it's out of print right now for sure. And uh, even though Grand Trunk Games, who recently produced 1861, 1869? Um, reprints of those, which are on their way, I think. I don't know if they're they're officially in a boat making their way here, but it, they'll be here shortly, and I can't wait to play them. Um, but the same guy who did those uh, managed to get in contact with the designer of 1889 and uh, and got him to uh, agree to uh, f- to the reprints. So that's going to be the next one. That's going to be kickstarted coming up. And I look forward to playing that uh, when I get my hands on it physically. But the other th- cool thing about 1889 Shikoku is that it's based on... It's enough because it's based on 1830, but it's it's viable at two players. And a lot of these games don't even bother saying play it. Like, don't, don't waste your time at two. It's not going to work. Um, and, I've, and I think, generally speaking, everyone agrees it's an inferior experience with two. But that said, any game that allows yours, like, actually modified... To allow for two player, to allow you to play it at low player counts like that at two players, is an instant win in my book, and I'm always intrigued by that because most of my games are played two player. I play a lot of games with Kayla, and um, at this point we know games that are designed for two players and the ones that aren't, and uh, the ones that aren't you can tell right away that it feels half-assed and uh, usually just has a dummy player of sorts that's that's shown up. Doesn't work. I hate it. Some games it's okay, and I'll tolerate it, but most games, ugh, don't. Just just call it a three-player game. Just I, It's going to cost you a sale probably here and there, but just do it. Um, which is something I forgot to mention with Roll for the Galaxy, is that at two players, uh, you roll an extra die at the end of every... Um, at, before you reveal your which actions you've chosen, and that simulates a third player, which I was just complaining about, but it does so in just a super quick, easy way. And that whatever dice face that's rolled uh, that's rolled upwards, that's going to be an extra action that round. So there's a, a, an element of total randomness toward what's going to pop up, but uh, um, it, at least it's something else. At least they've tried, and it works. It works perfectly. It's very, very nice, very elegant, and it's a classic. So anyway. 1889, designed not necessarily around two players, but it goes from two to four, I think. I don't think five. Five would be crazy. Um, But it's a very tight map. And something we noticed while we were playing this game, and uh, I I really don't want to go too far in the weeds, but this is my show, damn it. And if you're listening this far, or listening at all, then maybe you care. Maybe you've played one of these 18xx's. And I highly recommend it. In fact, one of the most interesting casualties... Gaming-wise, of this entire uh, uh, coronavirus, woo-flu, uh, koof issue that's been going on is that I got into 18xx just, uh, pretty reasonably, just around this time. And it's it's a game series I love so much that I want to I, I want to go around like an evangelist. I want to go and shake hands and spread the good word of 18xx because these games are so good that it is a crime that more people haven't played them. And we were talking about this after our game. Uh, it, the game ended. Uh, it could have gone either way. I was up a reasonable amount. And I, I could have been screwed partially, but it's it just wise plans, I think, just took one too many ORs to kind of made, make work, and I, I got away with it. Um, 
but we were talking about this because at the end of the game, we were comparing other types of, we were looking at some other types of games and seeing like, what's the complexity? What's the difficulty of these games? So something like, uh, so why was going up with this game called Seven Ages? And if you look on Board Game Geek, it's got the difficulty or complexity rating as something like uh, 3.9 out of 5 or somewhere up there. And you look at the game and it looks really bloody complicated. But, you know, a lot of the stuff looks nuts from a bird's eye view. In comparison, I looked up 1830, and 1830 is sitting at like a 4.1 out of 5, which is just absolutely madness as far as I'm concerned, because 1830 is as simple as it gets. The only weird part is the opening auction. That's it. And once you understand that, it, it everything clicks. But the opening auction mechanic is just so weird. Not in its complexity, but in its... no Nothing else does it that way. And the other problem is t- that... Any, like any game with um, when you're doing auctions or buying stuff that you have no idea what the value is. So are you underpaying? Are you overpaying? Like what's worth picking up? What isn't? So I think 1830 does have some, and I, you could argue 1889 is the same issue with uh, there are some pitfalls and some there are some potential problems with these uh, the the private auctions that you could buy something stupid. Um, and if you're not thinking, buy start up another company that doesn't have any synergy and so on. Um but I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. 1889, um, I, I don't. It, it's it's so much simpler than 1830, just because I think the map lends itself more to co- cooperating with other players, and the stops are worth more money. I think, generally speaking, they upgrade better. And the other cool thing is that the red zones all have special values for if you run a diesel to them. And uh, theoretically, you could be making $100 on one of these runs or one of these locations with your, your diesels, which, again, are their $1,100, just like the base game. So anyway, 1889, the reprint's coming. Tremendous game. W- replaces 1830, in my opinion. The only issue, I'd say, is the theme is slightly harder to grok just because it's based in Japan. Uh, so there's not as many commonalities that you can latch on to where you can say, oh, yeah, New York, I get New York, and then you go down to you know Chicago. I get that. Makes sense. When you're looking at this obscure island in, I believe, the south of Japan, and you're looking at these locations, they mean nothing to you. They might as well just like turn off the names and just see the values, and that's what you're doing. Um, but you do start to click into it after a little bit, so that's kind of cool. Highly recommend 1889. You can play it on 18xx.games. 18xx.games. That's where we played it. That's where we loved it. And I think uh, if there's ever a place to give it a shot, do it. And 1889 is so simple that it's even used as the tutorial for using the website. And before I go to another musical break, the website recently uh, introduced the alpha for 1860, which if you've listened to another one, uh, other episodes of the show... 1860 was a game we played before I got my hands on uh, <clears throat> 18 Max, and I absolutely loved it. 1860 is a really neat game that is, again, its own. It, it feels very different compared to others, and uh, I think I would put it above uh, 1830. If, if so, right now 1830 is very is is low on my list. Not because it's a bad game. It's just that I think there's other things I'd, I'd rather be playing than 1830 set in these 18xx worlds. So, musical break, we'll be back in a second. Stay tuned. Come on. 
Welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard was a double whammy. We started with All the Gold in California by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis off the soundtrack of True Detective Season 2. Profoundly disappointing season. Should not have come out that's quickly. Killed the series for a felt like uh, several years before... Uh, they came out with True Detective Season 3, which was much better than Season 2, but failed to garner the appreciation and the interest, even though I think, for the most part, uh, hit most of the same beats and was really good at what it did. Um, but I think it, it's just stumbled a little bit, uh, or too many times, and uh, didn't make the same mark. That said, it was still entertaining. And even Season 2 has its moments. It's just... It's, it's just... Uh, a mess of plotting that just leaves you with that sort of like, what if, <laughs> what if it didn't stink? Anyway, all the gold in California, Nikki of Warnell's fantastic little cover there. And that was followed up by sisters of the spear off of Fen Walker's most recent album. Hark the whispering dead of the burial lake. Because we can't get a show of Android's Dungeon without a bit of Dungeon Synth or some uh, medieval fantasy excitement these days. Uh, I want to end the show in uh, the bit of time we have left with a brief discussion about something that cannot be ignored. A phenomenon. An event that is arguably eight years in the, in the making. Um, and that is the release of Cyberpunk 2077. Do you remember in Revenge of the Sith when near the end of the movie, and this is spoilers if nobody's seen that, Obi-Wan and Anakin are having this uh, fantastic lightsaber duel over the lava, and uh, Anakin uh, misunderstands the high ground and ends up trying to do a jump and getting all his limbs chopped off <laughs> and set on fire. And uh, he's real. He's real upset with old Obi Wan, old Ewan McGregor. Uh, but Ewan McGregor, Obi Wan shouts at him, "You were the chosen one. You were. You were supposed to <laughs> bring balance to the world." Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven was the game that was the chosen one, and it was given. It was assigned and uh, assumed so much responsibility and hype and uh, that there was no way it could ever live up to it. But all of us wanted to believe that on some level it could do it. Everyone forgot that The Witcher 3 was a what Bob Ross called one of those happy little accidents. And that CD Projekt had mostly been a middle-tier AA dev based out of Poland that got pretty lucky with their, uh, you know, their so-so franchises. I don't, I'm not, I, I never played Witcher 1, I played a bit of Witcher 2, I didn't like it, and I played a good chunk of Witcher 3 and I thought it was perfectly fine, but I never understood the like the obsession and i think uh friend of the show harry i think he's played witcher 3 like <laughs> several times which absolutely flabbergasts me it, it, it can't i cannot wrap my head around that 
I understand it, but as far from an entertainment perspective, I don't get it at all. But uh, anyway, back in 2012, I'm pretty sure that's when I first saw the trailer. I remember being Korea and watching this and uh, being just blown away at the idea that uh, these guys are going to tackle a cyberpunk world, which is a genre that has been left to rot, been flatlined, dusted, zeroed out, because nobody can do it properly. But thanks to another happy little coincidence that the 80s are back in a in a big way uh i think mostly thanks to stuff like stranger things um but music movies television clothing the 80s are back and cyberpunk is ingrained in the 80s because it has this retro futurism and it has that pessimism and the cynic cynicism that is endemic to the 80s and um as opposed to the nihilism of the 90s. Um, so Cyberpunk was supposedly in development for eight years. And I think the more I read about it, the more I, I agree with the people saying the game's only been development for two or three at best. And it's it, it came out and it has not saved gaming. If anything, it's damned it. And I think this could be the first game for a lot of people you know that that uh, that meme from uh, Buster Scruggs with uh, James Franco be about to be hanged and looking at that guy and saying first time. I think this is the first time for a lot of young people, or maybe people who haven't really, you know, had their cherries popped with serious disappointment and hype about seeing a game that they've been waiting for for so long only to have it turn out to be uh, at best a 6 out of 10, maybe a 7 out of 10, at best. And without falling into too many details, it's um, virtually unplayable for a lot of people on current last-gen consoles, excuse me, PS4s, Xbox Ones. On a lot of PCs, it runs like garbage. If you have a PC powerhouse... Flip a coin, it might run like, you know, like butter and look like one of the greatest games of all time. Or you might, you know, struggle to render reflections. Uh, you might uh, experience trouble doing basic things. The AI is brain dead. It looks like things have been hard-coded with the most rudimentary sort of uh, AI programming that I think any one of us could you know, sit down in C++ and crank out. There are bugs everywhere. Texture pop in. Cars drive like crap. Story is short. Some people complain about Keanu's voice acting. I'm not there yet. I haven't met him yet. But I think at the end of the day, uh, and to be to clarify, I think I've played about 10 hours of Cyberpunk, maybe not if even. At the end of the day, ignoring all the UI problems, the shoot, the looter shooter nonsense, the the garbage that is the character customization, so many problems with this game. But the biggest problem is they took this great idea, this great world, and they, CD Projekt Red, cranked out 
something that is at best mediocre. And that's the worst crime you can do. If it is a flaming pile of dog turds, at least you can look at that and say, holy smokes, that is quite a big pile of dog turds that's on fire. If it's fantastic, you can say, this is brilliant. This is great. Let's talk about this. Let's see. Let's talk about everything they got right. As it stands, it's mediocre at best. And to me, that's a failure. You, it's something to forget. It's something not to talk about. And who knows? Maybe they'll pull a No Man's Sky. And we'll get a bunch of patches. And we'll get some DLC. And we'll get free support. And in a year or so, people will be saying, remember how they turned this, this game that was a disaster? And, t- and they took this game that was a disaster and turned it into a beloved game that everyone agrees is great? It's possible. I can't rule it out. But my heart has been broken so many times... And to be fair, my heart wasn't broken by Cyberpunk. I was I was worried for a long time after delay after delay. And seeing the fact that they delayed it already for a month. And this is the state they release it in. is It's honestly frightening. And I think if, if CD Projekt Red fires a bunch of managers and uh, does a company reorg, I'll, I might believe them. But as it stands, right now is a buggy disaster that is not not a good game. And I recommend everyone give it a try, if you catch my drift. Try before you buy. Borrow it from your friend (laughs) in Russia. (laughs) Because at this point, I do not recommend buying it. Uh, And if you are considering buying it, wait till it is on sale for a dramatic price. And it's going to come. It will happen. Even though C Project has made a ton of money on this, the, the discounts will be coming. And we'll see if they can rebuild that goodwill that they managed to just absolutely evaporate with, evaporate with, vaporize, nuke, atomize with the release of this unfinished mess. And it kills me to end the show like this on such a pessimistic note, but that's what it is, folks. So thank you for listening to Androids Dungeon, CFRU.CHX on Twitter at uh, Droid Dungeon Radio. Stay safe, everyone. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.